Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with New York-based jazz saxophonist and composer Roxy Koss. Born in Seattle, she now calls New York City her home. She's gearing up to release her second full album in 2016 called Restless Idealism, and she has plenty of insight into a career that has treated her very well. She went on to William Patterson University and studied saxophone with Rich Perry and Gary Smullyan, two contrasting styles that she describes in full detail. And she's performed with jazz giants like Clark Terry, Louis Hayes, and the great Jeremy Pell. Along with performing, she is a composer. She collaborated with her mother, Seattle artist Mary Koss, to create a seven-minute soundtrack entitled Eternal for an exhibit that she was putting on. She stays very busy, and we had a lot to talk about. So please, dig this interview, my friends. Hey, thank you for taking a little time out today. I appreciate it. Sure. And I'm going to go ahead and dive right in. I know that there's a new album on the horizon, but I want to get a general snapshot of what has been going on with you lately. Well, I'm gearing up for this release, everything that goes along with that, trying to get some some gigs on the book. Also, just starting to think about some new compositions. What's the new music? Whenever there's a project completed, it's time to get started with some new stuff. And then I'm I'm starting a show on Off-Broadway with Maurice Hines and the Diva Jazz Orchestra, as well as doing a show with Diva at Dizzy's this weekend. So that's all going on right now. So the, the the big event on the horizon here is your sophomore release in 2016 of Restless Idealism. Talk to me a little bit about this album, how the creative forces that went into this, just kind of the general feeling of this album. It's definitely evolved over time. Some of the compositions I wrote several years back, I did a residency at the Kennedy Center called Betty Carter's Jazz Ahead Program and worked really intensely with some peers, some other musicians and composers to get some new ideas started. That was kind of the first thing I had done after my first album came out. That kind of got me going in a different direction with the sound of the band. I started using guitar after that instead of trumpet. And then when we started playing at Smoke, we had a weekly residency at Smoke Jazz Club um, every week for a couple years. That gave me a chance to kind of play with different players and try out some different compositions and some different versions of things. That was kind of how it evolved. And it, it took a while because it was just sort of on the back burner while I was doing these other things. And I was traveling with Jeremy Pelt for a couple of years. And then the compositions themselves, I think I was going through a huge transition at that time, starting to be really be a professional and touring and working and kind of out of school and into the real world. So I think that the music reflects that life transition and relationships and personal growth and all of that. Right on. And your first release, which was self-titled, was in 2010. Talk to me a little bit right. about the journey the journey to that album and why it's taken six years to have a second one out. Kind of give me an overview a little bit. Um, well, the first one I completely did myself. I recorded it at home and mixed it myself. And it was really do-it-yourself like, I was in school while I was writing a lot of that stuff at the beginning, and I was playing with my band, the first version of my band, um, every week at a restaurant in my neighborhood. Um, And so that was definitely finding myself and kind of having my own band for the first time and having a regular performance in my life for the first time. Once that 
was out, as I'm sure you know, doing a record yourself is hard and <laughs> uh, yeah. pretty complicated. There's a lot that goes into it. So um, it definitely took me a while to find money and get the music together and just think about how I wanted to do it differently. You know, like I wanted I wanted to do it on a label and I wanted to have some some players on there that were people that I looked up to and were playing with on a regular basis. So I kind of wanted to take this record to a new level. And so it kind of took me a while to just get all those pieces together. And I still did a lot of this myself. So just learning about the process and learning, you know, what are the options for recording studios or what are the options for for labels and, and all those choices that you come across throughout the process it took a while for me this time. Yeah, that's a massive learning curve in itself. Let's keep going back in time here. Let's go back to growing up in Seattle. Give me an idea of what it was like in your childhood to give you this love of music, and more specifically, jazz. I was always a musician. I was always, like, music was my favorite thing. Um, When I was five, I was in music class at school, and my music teacher told my parents, wow, she's really talented. Like, you should get her some private lessons. Um, And I started piano. And I happened to have a really cool piano teacher with a cool piano method um, where we focused a lot on ear training um, and composition instead of the traditional just learning classical pieces. So that gave me a really good foundation so that when I picked up the saxophone, I already kind of had a pretty good understanding of music theory basics and kind of a good feel as a foundation. And then I went to um, Washington Middle School, which is famous in Seattle, Robert Knapp, taught there and he got me into jazz he gave me a tenor saxophone for the first time and I was like I'm never putting this down <laughs> um, and introduced me to some new records and and that was the first time I really listened to jazz and liked it and then when I went to Garfield High School which is also famous uh, Clarence Acox runs the band there he brought me out to Europe and we came to New York three times played with Wynton Marsalis and when I came to New York I was when I was really like wow I could do this for my career. You know, I want this to be my life. So speaking of albums, that's another component of this. Was there albums or an album early on that just blew you away? You were like, wow, that's that's jazz. That's wondrous. <laughs> Definitely. I guess the number one thing would be Blue Train. <laughs> I was I was like the jazz nerd singing along with the solos when I was like 15 at a party. <laughs> um <laughs> So that that was definitely a major one, and some Cannonball Adderley, like something else, and a lot of Art Blakey with Wayne Shorter, that era. Well, you mentioned early on you've always been into music. Did you always have dreams of being a musician growing up, or were there other aspirations or dreams when you were younger? I think the first time that I like realized I wanted to be a professional musician, I was 15, and it was after my first trip to New York. Before that, I didn't really have a picture of what a musician was, but it's always been high on my list of what's in my consciousness, like what am I passionate about, what's going on in my life, whether it was a music recital or, you know, whatever it was. I think I had the usual kid development, like, oh, I want to be a teacher, I want to do this or that, but I was never very passionate about any one thing until I, I really found music. And then, obviously, that voted well for you. You met, you graduated in 2008, magna cum laude, from William Patterson University. And during that time, it mentioned that you studied sax with Rich Perry and the great Gary Snullian. What was it like to 
um, you obviously excelled well in school and learned from some of the best. What was that experience like? Gary and Rich are like two polar opposites. <laughs> <laughs> Gary was my teacher my freshman year, and he just really threw me into the fire. He's like, okay, learn these 10 songs this week. And I'm like, how? I don't know how. <laughs> and then he, he was like, okay, we're going to play Coltrane Changes on Body and Soul. And I'm like, I don't know what that is. And he's like, you'll hear it, you'll hear it. Um, so his his style is very just like, let's just do it, and then we'll talk. Rich Perry, on the other hand, is very, like, thoughtful, and he would just sit there and listen to me and then say, well, have you thought about this? <laughs> um, and so I think that was a good balance, for sure, to have those different kind of methods. And I also did some studying during that time classically um, with uh, David Dempsey, who's the coordinator over there. I think I, I got a good mix of people's opinions, which I think is important at that age. Well, I'm going to play off of that metaphor. It seemed like you had a real yin and yang geographical balance. You go from the West Coast, Seattle, into the bevy of jazz on the East Coast in New York. What was that kind of cultural shift like for you to go from that, which was your homeland, to kind of the recognized world mecca of jazz in New York? Uh, well, it was definitely a cultural shock, but maybe not for that reason. I thought that I was going to be, like, in New York, but Wayne, New Jersey is far from New York <laughs> um, <laughs> in every way. It's only it's only about 20 minutes drive, but when you don't have a car, it takes a long time on the bus, and culturally, it couldn't be any further from where I grew up in Seattle, and also from New York. Um, Seattle is more similar in terms of it's a city. It's very it places you know high value on the arts and education, things that I think are very similar to New York, um, which makes me feel a little bit more at home in, in New York. But when I first got to New Jersey, it was definitely a shock, um, uh-huh. just a different a different way of life, more suburban in that everybody, it's like you're driving everywhere and you're isolated. And um, William Patterson itself is, is sort of like a commuter campus, so a lot of people just go home on the weekends. And I was surprised <laughs> when yeah. I got there. Absolutely. Well, and I'm going to kind of delve into a little bit of the facets of you as a musician. One of those is you have a quintet. Talk to me a little bit about that outfit. Well, the quintet, I like having two voices. For some reason, that's been really, I haven't really wanted to stray from that too much in my composition. I did do some arranging and composing as part of my undergrad degree, and I worked privately with uh, Rich DeRosa on composition. For some reason, I just keep gravitating towards the two voices when I'm writing melodies and harmonies and stuff. That's kind of what I hear. I like the idea of having the saxophone be the only horn, but still having the ability to write counter melodies and harmonies in the guitar and use it sort of as a horn, but then it can also be used texturally and and chordally um, when when I want to switch over, switch gears. So I like having the freedom to have those different textures, you know, piano and guitar, but then also have the guitar double as a one-line instrument. And another aspect of your career that's very evident is that you've worked with some giants, Clark Terry, Jeremy Pelt, Lewis Hayes. What do you learn from being around people that have so much experience and so much clout? What is it like to get on stage with them? It's really incredible. I mean, I think that it's invaluable, and I think it does something that nothing else can do. It's a very unique experience that I'm extremely grateful for. 
I think that it's more about the feeling that you get. I think that that's the biggest thing I learned. It's like there's a certain amount of power or, you know, they're obviously fluent with what they're doing, but there's just a feeling. And I remember like with Clark Terry, he would just sing things. He's like, no, this is what it is. And he would sing it. And that's the only way you can really get the feeling of something. You can talk about it all day, but in the end, it really just has to feel right. And I think that that's the thing that's common with all of those people. With Lewis Hayes, it's like, I mean, I've never played with a drummer with so much power and like, just like, here's what it is. And that that is a really good lesson. It sort of forces you to go to their level when you're playing with somebody like that. And yeah. same with Jeremy. I mean, the fact that it's trumpet, but then also that Jeremy plays it so powerfully. It's like you're forced to, to kind of step up and out of yourself a little bit. Well, it's interesting. I was thinking about Clark. I, I saw that movie with that young kid, Justin Coughlin, and I remember he did that a lot in the documentary, he did a lot of vocalizing and harmonizing when he was teaching him things. And so, yeah. uh, that, and, and it seemed to me that he wasn't going to stop until it was right. And that was just kind of my feeling with them. If, if it's not right, you're going to do it until it's right kind of a thing. Definitely. Which, you know, that's just yeah. everybody has their teaching way of doing things, you know. Yeah, um, I remember Clark Terry, I was talking to him on the phone one time, and he he was telling me, he said, when I used to practice when I was in my 20s, there was no time limit. It was did I finish the tasks that I was working on? You know, if I was doing an exercise, it's like, did I finish it? Can I play it perfectly every time? Because if yeah. you can't, you're not done yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about live shows. You headlined the Jazz Showcase in Chicago. You were featured at the Ballard mm-hmm. Music Fest in Seattle. What is it like to headline and be a part of these big music fests? Do you like performing live? What is it like? Uh, yeah, definitely. For me, that's basically why I do what I do. It's definitely one of the best things for me, one of the major highlights. Being able to perform in a festival or venue like that, especially when there's a built-in audience or an audience that maybe doesn't know you yet, those are some of the most fun experiences because you can take them on a journey. I like playing for an audience that doesn't really know what they're getting into. And at the Ballard Jazz Fest, we had a great audience. We had a a packed house. It's also fun to play in different places. Like if I play in Seattle or I play in Chicago or play in New York, you get to know that different locations have a different feel and the audience members feel different. And so that's interesting to explore as well when you're performing in different locations. Another facet of you is that you're a composer and you collaborate with your mom, Mary, in Seattle for a seven-minute soundtrack for one of her exhibitions at the Method Gallery. Talk to me a little bit about how that was to collaborate with your mom, A, and B, what it's like to be a composer as a actual musician. It was really cool to do this project. It's the first time that I've worked with my mom and my sister on a project. Uh, my sister's tap dancing on the recording. Um, she was recorded tapping, and then I used some of those samples for the composition. I think that it's important to me to do things like that. One of the things I got from my mom is like this side of me that's very interested in feminist things and making sure that the feminist voice is heard and the feminine voice is heard. And so her art has that theme through it a lot. And this show in particular was touching on a lot of those subjects. And so it was an added thing for me that was powerful that I got to do the project with my mom and my sister and that we're all artists in different ways. So that was really cool. My mom 
had the concept for it, she wanted the base of it to be over a heartbeat, and the heartbeat would change, you know, beats per minute. So the tempo essentially would change throughout the piece. And so I shaped it based on that idea, and then I just layered things on top. And so I think that me being a musician is definitely central to my compositions and my composing, especially for a project like this. I composed a few of the little concepts, like on piano, but a big portion of it was things that I would record myself playing saxophone for like a long time. And then I would just edit that and place things in different places and layer things. And then once I had like the bones, I might go back and add some more things over it. But playing was definitely what inspired a lot of that composition. So let me ask you this. You mentioned your mom. You mentioned her uh, impact. A lot of musicians that have taught you over the years. Who would you say has been your uh, greatest teacher? Musically, that's a hard question. I would say on the saxophone, I had the most intense work with my high school saxophone teacher, who was Mark Taylor, um, a great Seattle saxophonist. I think that life, my parents definitely put me on this path to be a musician, you know, the inspiration to be an artist. They're both artists and um, follow my passion and be a strong woman. These things all helped me be who I am and be in this industry. So definitely them. And the teachers that I mentioned, uh, Robert Nadd and Clarence Acox, are definitely integral in me taking this path in my career. So let me ask you this. Who would you consider your jazz heroes? <laughs> well, I, I think that's a very hard question just because there's so many of them. But also I think I'm starting to look at living jazz musicians differently. Like when you're a kid, it's like it's like they almost aren't human. It's like this celebrity thing. It's been cool to actually like play with people that I used to look at like that and just like say, oh my gosh, they're they're human. They're a real person. And it's interesting to see how somebody's personality helps create who they are as a musician and vice versa. So I think that that changes as you get more into the scene and you get older. But I think the, there's kind of the usual list of tenor players, John Coltrane I mentioned, Wayne Shorter I mentioned, you know, Joe Henderson, Dexter Gordon, Sonny Rollins. When I was younger, I listened to a lot of um, Stanley Turrentine and guys like that. You know, it's a long list, but... <laughs> well, this next question will whittle that list down, so I'm going to ask you this. If you could get into the Jazz DeLorean and go back in time, who would you want to see live and where would you go to see them? Oh, I would see Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers, that band. I don't. It wouldn't really matter where, you know, the band with Wayne Shorter. That's the band I would choose. <laughs> uh, let me ask you this. What, why do you love jazz? Also a hard question. For one thing, everything that's going on right now is so opposite of jazz. Social media, pop music, it's very digitalized, just everything that's happening in the world right now. And so I feel like more than ever, it just becomes more and more necessary in my life as like a very human thing. It's something that the more you put into it, the more it gives back to you. And I think that that's a great life lesson. I love that it's something that is completely what you make it. It's always going to be a different experience. Every time you play, even if it's the same musicians, the same compositions, it's going to be completely different every single time. It's very interactive, and it's a democratic music. I mean, everybody gets their own thing said. And I think that part of the reason it's such a human thing and it's so different than everything that's going on in our culture right now is that it really encourages and emphasizes 
the individual. It's like we need as many different voices as we can, and there's never going to be too many good jazz musicians. It's like everybody's going to sound so unique if they if they realize their unique voice, and that's so important. So tell me this. What's the greatest thing about waking up every day? Huh. Uh, that I don't have to go to a job. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I like I like that every day is different, and if I have time to create, that's my favorite thing to wake up to is, like, I get to play the instrument or I get to create something. So you obviously got a new album coming out next year. You've been very busy in your career. Let's say we talk in 10 years. What are you going to want to tell me when I ask you what's been going on? What are you going to want to talk about? Uh, hopefully the same thing. <laughs> hopefully I'm just making making more music and more people hear about it and it's on a better level, a higher level. But I, I feel like I am a musician now, so it, everything will be the same except more and better. <laughs> so everybody has their perception of who Roxy is. Your family does, your friends do, those that you play live to. I do as someone that looked into your bio to see what you've done in your life. But I want you to tell me, who do you think you are? I am a strong female artist, creative person, and a musician. And I think some things that are central to me are just being individual, being honest, giving what you can of yourself. That's a great way to kind of sum everything up. Thank you for your time today. I really appreciate you opening up. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Roxy for her music, her time, and her devotion to the jazz craft. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store or visit theneonjazz.blogspot.com for all things Neon Jazz. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.